going to try my best to recap. I think my version of a recap is probably just talking a lot about what I talked about last week and pretending like I, it was a recap, but really just because everybody needs to hear it 40 more times. And so we're going to try to recap and add some stuff. But if you want to go to Galatians 4, uh, we're going to start there um, again in Galatians 4. Uh, but I... I'm noticing more and more and more that it's very interesting. Most revivals previous to this one, especially in the United States or in the West, um, often start in very Pentecostal uh, movements or evangelical movements, whatever you want to call them. Um, And it's interesting that this one started in a Wesleyan university. And I, I think it is because it, it actually isn't tied to what we would consider or call charismatic. You know, it's, it's not tied. It is pretty funny. They had one, the other day they had a lady in there and I guess she started manifesting a demon. Half the people in there thought she was having a seizure. So they called the, the ambulance to come in because <laughs> it's not something they're really used to handling. And one lady behind her just stood up and started speaking in tongues and the thing just left right, out, right there. And so it's really cool, but you're, you're seeing a very different beginning of this movement. If you were to take something like Brownsville or you were to take something like even Azusa Street, um, you know, very much more in, in the Pentecostal River uh, than it would be anything else. But I, I believe the reason it's starting somewhere else and moving into the Pentecostal movements is because it truly is about who we are. And if, and if we find ourselves in revival based off denomination, then we found ourselves in something that's not actually revival. It's the reality of it, right? And so I want us to keep going on the idea of, of the gospel, on the idea of who we are, because for me, I, I want to transition um, when I'm speaking really into the concepts of if we're as righteous as God, then what does that mean as far as holiness? Um, what does that mean as far as prayer? What does that mean as far as worship? But uh, unfortunately, I, I don't feel the, the transitional period yet to get out of talking about who we are. It's just, it's just not the time. And so I, I want to go back to Galatians 4. Um, we're going to start at verse 21 if you're there. If I'm in the Passion Translation, uh, it reads an, an Old Testament allegory. It reads like this. Tell me, do you want to go back to living strictly by the law? Haven't you ever listened to what the law really says? Have you forgotten that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave girl and the other by the free woman? Ishmael, the son of the slave girl, was born of the natural realm. But Isaac, the son of the free woman, was born supernaturally by the Spirit, a child of the promise of God. These two women and their sons express an allegory and become symbols of two covenants. The first covenant was born on Mount Sinai, birthing children into slavery. This is children born to Hagar. For Hagar represents the law given at Mount Sinai in Arabia. The Hagar metaphor corresponds to the earthly Jerusalem of today who are currently in bondage. In contrast, there is a heavenly Jerusalem above us which is our true mother. Say our true mother. She is the free woman birthing children into freedom. For it is written, burst forth with gladness, rejoice, O barren woman with no children. Break through with the shouts of joy and jubilee, for you are about to give birth. The one who was once considered desolate and barren now has more children than the one who has a husband. Dear friends, just like Isaac, 
we now, we're now the true children, us, who inherit the kingdom promises. And just as the son of the natural world at the time harassed the son born of the power of the Holy Spirit, so it is today. And what does the scripture tell us to do? Expel the slave, the slave mother with her son. The son of the slave woman will not be a true heir, for the true heir of the promise is the son of the free woman. It is now so obvious. We're not the children of the slave woman. We're the supernatural sons of the free woman. We are actually sons of grace. Amen? What, what allegory is Paul referring to? It's found in, in Genesis uh, 21. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read the end. Uh, basically, Sarah gets pregnant. Everyone's excited. She gets pregnant. All that fun stuff happens. It's been 100 years. And in Genesis, it says, And Sarah declared, God has brought me laughter. All who hear about this will laugh with me. Who would have said to Abraham, and, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse a baby? Yet I have given Abraham a son in his old age. When Isaac grew up and was about to be weaned, focus on that, weaned, Abraham prepared a huge feast to celebrate the occasion. But Sarah saw Ishmael, the son of Abraham and her Egyptian servant Hagar, making fun of her son Isaac. So she turned to Abraham and demanded, get rid of the slave woman and her son. He is not going to share the inheritance with my son Isaac. I won't have it. Right? We've got two sons, two wives of Abraham, and it's getting pretty rough in the house. Isaac turns eight years old, and he's being weaned off his mother's milk. He's being weaned away from his mother. And on that day, they do a, a massive celebration, a massive feast. Everyone's super excited. And what happens is Sarah looks out to see how the preparations are going. And she sees Ishmael, who is actually at the time leading a, a pretty good-sized group of Abraham's men, actually picking on Isaac, talking about probably most likely how he's still on his mother's milk, how he's barely even born, how he will probably get the inheritance and how Isaac won't. And so what does Sarah do? Sarah goes full mom mode and says, you tell that woman and her ugly son to get out. Tell that redheaded stepchild and her, and her mother, his mother, to leave. As it shows in Galatians, we're given two metaphors for Sarah and, and Hagar. Right? Hagar represents the law given on Mount Sinai. It, it represents Mount Sinai itself. And Sarah actually represents the place in which children are being born into freedom. She represents the free woman. She represents how we're birthed into freedom, which would be Mount Zion. So we see Mount Sinai where the law is given, and we see Mount Sinai where freedom is given, right? Obviously, we know Mount Sinai is where Moses went up and got the Ten Commandments, came down. Everyone was celebrating naked and burning a heifer, and so he had to go back up and do it again, come back down. And that one finally stuck. And it's a parallel to Jesus on Mount Zion actually releasing the new covenant of grace. So we see two women with two different representations of who they are. What does Sarah or what does Hagar and what does, more importantly, Ishmael represent? Ishmael is the birthing of something made out of self-effort. Right? Ishmael is the child of self-effort. Of self what is Isaac? Isaac is the child born of the promises of the father. Okay? Why, why is Ishmael even alive? 
Why is Ishmael allowed to exist? What's he doing there? Why is Hagar married to Abraham in the first place? It's because the promises of God were taking too long. Right? Abraham gets told he's going to have a son. Sarah can't believe and honestly can't wait very long for the promise. So what do they decide to do? They decide to take the promise of God and bring in self-effort to produce what actually was made to be produced with the Spirit. And the hard thing is, is that Abraham loved what was produced with self-effort. Ishmael was not some ugly red-headed stepkid over to the side. No, he was starting to lead Abraham's army. And up until the birth of Isaac, Abraham lived under the assumption that Ishmael would be given everything that Abraham had, that he would be the promised child until Isaac came. Now Abraham's faced with the greatest conundrum of all. I have to expel what's been made out of self-effort, but I love what I've made out of self-effort. I'm gonna have a hard time with that word every day. Self-effort, I need to say it 5,000 times. And just like us, as Paul's using a metaphor, what happens? When what's birthed out of the spirit begins to be, come into the place of maturity, what's birthed through our own works, what's birthed through our own self-effort begins to make fun and condemn what is being born, praise God, spiritually. Even the chair's saying hallelujah. I'm killing it tonight. This is what he's showing us is that, is that we are no longer slaves to Hagar, to the law. We are actually children of the free woman born into freedom. But what's happening in most of our lives is not that we don't believe we're children of the free woman. What happens is we actually haven't, cooked, we actually haven't kicked Hagar and Ishmael out of our camp. And so every time we reach any bit close, any bit of a close place of freedom, any bit of a close realization of who we actually are, Ishmael shows up. Self-effort shows up. He shows up with your to-do list. He shows up with what you have to accomplish today to be a son. He shows up with what you haven't accomplished today to disqualify you as a son. And no matter how much we want to face it, the reality is, is that anything we birth out of self-effort self will always mock what's trying to happen to us in the spirit. It's the truth. And so what, is, what does Paul say the only option that we can do and what we, what we have to do in that moment is expel Hagar, expel Mount Sinai and her son out of the camp. How does that work? It's the process of realizing who we are. It's the process of realizing how loved we are. As I said last week, when we realize how loved we are, our checklist actually begins to die. When we realize how loved we are, I'm not waiting for other people to approve of who I am. When we realize how loved we are, we don't have to go on social media and post every little thing we do to get some type of approval of how I live my life. I actually find my purpose, my identity, and everything that I am in the Father. It's the same thing with, with being a church leader. When you realize how loved you are and that you're called to build kingdom family, you won't actually produce something simply for numbers. You won't actually build a house and then tell everybody how many people are coming. 
You won't build a house on the idea of marketing strategies and campaigns to fill the room. You won't give out free t-shirts and free pizza because you're not trying to build something off your own self-effort. Self you're actually trying to build something slowly through the kingdom. It's called true success, right? It's called true individual and true ministry success. Do I want beloved to be successful? Of course. Do I want the room to be filled with people that, that want to learn and understand more than anything? But I refuse to build everything that we're doing here on Seth Elfert or on, on Ishmael and then call it favor because that's what people do. People spend 10 years building something out of their own self-effort and then they go on other platforms and go, was the favor of the Lord. Wasn't the $10 we were giving away to every new, new guest. It was the favor of the Lord. Wasn't the advertisement of the free Under Armour t-shirt we were giving out. I promise it was just my prayers in the Lord that did it. And what happens oftentimes, and we've seen more of this now than ever before, the reason we're seeing so many leaders fail, the reason we're seeing so many predominant spiritual figures actually fall, even ones that would shock us. You take somebody like uh, uh, Ravi, uh, Ravi Zacharias, is that right? Ravi Zacharias, I never say his name right. It's a shocking moment. What happens is we build everything that we're doing on self-effort self and the only way that we can maintain it is to live another life somewhere else because my whole life is putting it up on my own shoulders. We used to laugh all the time when I was a kid. My dad would always tell all of his staff before he went on vacation, don't tell anybody I'm going out of town because half the people won't show up because the pastor's not there. And in a way, you almost, as a leader, you feel really good about that. Like, yeah, they won't, because I'm not there. Wink. Of course not, I'm not there. But what you actually realize is, is that you have an entire group of people who are simply there for a person and not a father. It's the nature of how churches are built. How many, how many, how many places do you walk in and you see two leaders back to back with their hands like this at the very front door? What does that have to do with anything? But what happens is we are building these monuments on self-effort self and then we wonder why there's a complete lack of fulfillment in our own lives. We come to church, we do the thing, we show our checklist over and over again and we hear about freedom, we hear about, we hear about complete and total healing and wholeness and yet it somehow eludes us all the time. And so what does Ishmael do? He comes in and says, the reason you don't have that is because you're not doing enough. You haven't prayed enough today. You haven't done enough today. I used to read all the time about how John Wesley used to pray for three or four hours in the morning. I thought, oh my God, I could never do that. Then you realize that John Wesley oftentimes went to bed as soon as the sun set and woke up at 4 a.m. Well, what are you gonna do before the sun rises other than pray when you don't have a TV? So I don't think it's just that spiritual. I just think he didn't have a lot going on. And the hard part often for people is that when you actually, when a group of people actually decide to go for the real thing, when they actually decide to become kingdom family, when they actually decide to do things the hard way, there are oftentimes a group of people mixed in who are looking oftentimes for the metrics of worldly success and wondering why they're not being produced. And they'll come up to you in your own Christian walk and do the same thing to you individually. Well, you say you're doing this, but you look like this. You say you're doing this, but I don't see you here and doing this. 
It's self-effort trying to come in and once again mock exactly who you are. Let's look at these uh, a, a little closer because I, I want us to look at what is available to us actually when we kick Ishmael out of the camp. So I'm going to read the end of this again, and I want us, um, yeah, mm, yeah. Let's go here. I want us to look at the end here. Um, yeah, let's go to verse 28, and we'll start there. Uh, Dear friends, just like Isaac, we're now true children who inherit the kingdom promise. And just as the son of the natural world at the time harassed the son born of the power of the Holy Spirit, so it is today. And what does the scripture tell us to do? Expel the slave mother with her son. The son of the slave woman will not be a true heir, for the true heir of the promise is the son of the free woman. It is now so obvious we're not children of the slave women. We're the supernatural sons of the free woman, sons of grace. If you push back to verse 25, it says, For Hagar represents the law given on Mount Sinai in Arabia. The Hagar metaphor, it corresponds to the earthly Jerusalem of today. What is the earthly Jerusalem of today? It is the idea of religion. The reality is, is that Jesus is actually the opposite of religion. If you look at the definition and the reality of what religion is, religion in its most basic form is this. Here's a deity, and here's a roadmap of all the things that you have to do or become to get to the deity. That's religion. You, you want to become a Buddhist, you don't get to show up and hang out with Buddha immediately. It's 30 or 40 years of, of meditation, of losing yourself, of becoming one with everything around you, right? If you want to be a Hindu, it's the same thing. Religion lives on the platform that here's the end goal, here's the deity, here's where I am, here's all the checkboxes and all the rules to get there. And Christianity is actually, shockingly, is the opposite. Christianity is actually the opposite. So what is the earthly Jerusalem? It actually represents Judaism. It actually represents religion. It represents the idea that if you want Jesus, here's A through Z, here's all the things you have to do, here's all the things you have to become, and then you can get there. This is the problem that Paul's facing in almost every one of the churches in the letters that he's writing. It's dealing with the mingling of the law with the revelation of grace, okay? In, in contrast, though, there is a heavenly Jerusalem above us, which is our true mother. She is the free woman birthing children into freedom. Say that. She's birthing freedom into, say she's birthing children into, you say freedom. 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 Praise the Lord. Freedom. Let's look at the idea of what it means to be birthed into freedom, right? So Sarah represents Mount Zion. I, I don't have it with me. I actually forgot it today, but... If I, uh, if I had, I have the Mirror Translation Bible and um, it goes into Galatians and it talks about uh, Jesus being born into the world. The Mirror Translation states it like this, that Jesus' legal passport into the planet, Jesus' legal passport into humanity was his mother's womb. How's, how is Jesus able to be a human, live here, and live fully human? Mary. Being birthed into his mother's, being birthed out of his mother's womb. So what does this mean? If Sarah represents our true mother, which is Mount Zion, 
and she's birthing people into freedom, which is the new Jerusalem. How do we get there? We have to be birthed completely out of freedom. Our, our legal passport to who we want to become is not a rule list, it's a different mother. And so when we think of the term, it says that she's birthing people into freedom and she's birthing people not into the earthly Jerusalem, but the new Jerusalem, we begin to ask ourselves, well, how do I get to the new Jerusalem? What do I have to do? It's not about what you do, it's about who your mother is. It's about actually coming to the full belief that there's no part I play in my salvation. He does it, he did it. He will continue to do it. Romans describes our process of becoming saved just as Abraham believing in Isaac. That when Yahweh told Abraham that you will have a son and Abraham said, I believe you, it, counted, it was counted to him as righteousness. It's the exact same with us. And I know I always kind of lead back to this, but the reality is being birthed out of Sarah, being birthed out of Mount Zion into freedom is actually falling under the belief that we are as righteous as God. It's falling into the true understanding that we are as righteous as God. Right? Let's look at that because I still see some faces that don't believe me. I've been saying it for months, but don't, still don't believe me. Go to Romans uh, 5 uh, in the Passion Translation. Romans 5, and we're going to start at the very beginning, so I'll give you a second to get there. Romans 5 reads like this at the beginning. Our faith in Jesus transfers God's righteousness to us and he now declares us, declares us flawless in his eyes. This means we can now enjoy true and lasting peace with God all because of what our Lord Jesus, the anointed one, has done for us. Our faith guarantees us. Listen, did you hear works in there? Did you hear your tithing? Did you hear your Bible reading? Did you hear your Beth Moore devotional? No. Our faith guarantees us permanent access into the marvelous kindness that has given us, you ready? A perfect relationship with God. A perfect relationship with God. God has transferred his righteousness to us that we may become as righteous as him so that we may have a perfect relationship with the Father. Once again, what is righteousness? Righteousness is about identity. It's not about equality. When we become as righteous as God, it's not to say we are equal with God. It is about identity, right? If you were to look at the word righteousness in the Greek, it's dikainousine. And probably one of the only things that the Strong's Concordance gets right is this word. It is actually not to be in right standing with someone. Rather, it is to be in the state that one ought to be. Righteousness is actually being in the state that you ought to be in. The person that you were created to be, when you put your faith in Jesus, you become that person. That is the transfer of righteousness. So when you become as righteous as God, what, it's, what he is saying is, as much as God is God and that person doesn't change, you have become you and you don't change. That's the idea. That is the revolutionary shock of the gospel. Is that my faith in Christ actually empowers me to look like the son. Not only does it empower me to look like the son, the scriptures go on to tell us that I'm actually as loved as the son. 
which is a lot harder for us to comprehend. I talked a lot about this at our men's retreat. Is us finally finding a way to come to the actual realization that as much as God loves Jesus, he loves you. And guess what you had to do to get that? Zero. It's faith. It's faith. But what's happened, what's happening right now, what's kind of making our skin crawl is the idea, ugh, that feels really gracey. Where's the condemnation in that? Where's the works in that? Where's Ishmael at? Where's my checklist at? And the reality is, is that the only way to truly become free is to realize that everything in our lives, our spiritual disciplines, our devotional time, our prayer time, our time of fasting, whatever it looks like, our only true freedom comes when we come to the realization that all those things are to help realize who we've become, not become someone different. Right? I did, I did 10 weeks on spiritual disciplines at the beginning of last year. Every spiritual discipline has nothing to do with you earning something and has everything to do with you actually realizing who you already have become. And so that's why when we show up with our checklist and there's no, you're amazing, you get the gift of healing. <gasps> you read 20 days in a row, here's the gift of prophecy. You've been tithing for 20 years, here's the gift of a million dollars. I know, amen. <laughs> Praise the Lord, I'm there for it. And when we hear this message, it, it, it is, it's hard because our entire lives have actually not been the gospel. Our entire lives have been religion. And it's been wrapped in this neat esca. Oh, I wanna go there. I think I am gonna go there. I'll turn over some stones. We got free donuts. So if you get pissed at me, you can just enjoy the donut after and you'll totally forget about it. You'll totally forget why you didn't like me once you start eating free donuts. Happens to me all the time. But what happens is the reason that we can somehow believe in this distorted version of whatever we think the gospel is, is because it's wrapped in some eschatology bow that everything is available for us after we die, right? The Western gospel, the Western gospel is this, Jesus died so that you could go to heaven. And you go, well, what about like the 60 or 70 years before that? And they're like, that's gonna suck. Right? The idea is Jesus died so you could go to heaven. And before that, if you sin too much, you're going to burn in hell. So good luck. Here's the rule book. Start in Genesis. And it's exhausting. Right? It's hoops we, we can't jump through. How do we know? Because the first entire half of the Bible called the Old Testament is people group after people group after people group not being able to jump through the hoops. Not being able to live up to the standard. And it's because we have actually no true revelation of good eschatology, which is the reality that new Jerusalem is available to you now, right? It says, um, and let me make sure I've got the right place here. Oh, I'm in Romans. I need to get back to Galatians. Glory to God. It says in Galatians 4 that there is a new Jerusalem, a heavenly Jerusalem. In contrast, there is a heavenly Jerusalem above us. I talked about this last week. We read there is a heavenly Jerusalem above us. And what do we do? We take the day off. Oh, it's above us. <laughs> it's in the sky, which means it's for the dead people. And the alive people are in the old crappy Jerusalem. 
And so once again, everything in Christianity becomes once again about when we die. We need to look at this word extremely, extremely close. The word above is the Greek word anu. It's actually where we get the word analog from, right? Uh, the, one of the greatest examples of when this word is used is in the book of Revelations. John goes into this vision. And when he gets into this vision, he hears a knock at the door. And, and, and the door opens up and there's angels and everything else. They got heads and crazy lions and tigers and bears. And there's people throwing crowns and it's a party, right? And so what does Jesus say to him? He says, come up here to me. Now come up here to me for us oftentimes looks like I'm here on either this planet or this dimension and you're up here. Come up here to me. Right? This isn't what Jesus is telling John. What Jesus is telling John is you're there and I'm here, so you come up here to me. You don't have to. You're good. I love you, though. You come up here to me. You come to my eyeline. You raise your stance. Right? And so when we read this word above, we have to look at it correctly that it's not a, it's not some type of, Plato's version of heaven where it's found after the Milky Way. It's a veil. And so when we read this, a, a, a way better translation would actually read, in contrast, there is a heavenly Jerusalem before us. You're living in an old Jerusalem and there's actually a heavenly, a new Jerusalem before you. It's not out of reach, it's fingertips away. It's the concept of the kingdom of God is at hand. It's, it's the pulling of the veil. It's the removing of the veil. And we've spent our whole lives believing our, the new Jerusalem, the great stuff, all the no sickness, all the living in peace, all the living in happiness and joy and wholeness is saved for after we die. I've talked about it last week. I'm probably starting to sound a lot like a broken record these days. But the reality is the only thing unavailable to you on this planet right now is a new body. Unless you want to work out. I don't know. Transform yourself. But the only thing unavailable to you in the heavenly realm is, is your transformed body. Right? Romans talks about that our transformed body is actually the seal of our faith and our hope. It is the promise and the end date of that where he says, guess what? Everything you believed was true. Boom. Here's the new body. But we live constantly in the religious mindset that my life was made to struggle and my life was made for me to constantly break myself down and, and fast and hit myself and be angry and, and count how many 90-day Bibles I do a year and, and, and count how many devotionals I do a year and hope and pray to God that I get just a little bit better enough to get into heaven. How many debates do you hear go on in, in coffee shops or in circles about different things within the Christian faith, whether it be homosexuality, whether it be this, whether it be that? And the answer oftentimes or the proposed question is, well, what gets me to heaven and what gets me to hell? Because that's the Western gospel. What are the borderlines of what gets me to the good place and what are the borderlines of what gets me to the bad place? Jesus' gospel actually looks a lot different. Jesus' gospel actually looks like this, that everything that you've been told that you're waiting for till after you die is here right now. 
Do you know that if you look at all four Gospels, all four Gospels, well, John doesn't really have one. Um, it doesn't really have a great commission inside of it. But if you look at the other three Gospels, they're at the end, there's a, there's a section that they often uh, title um, the Great Commission or the Commission. Do you know that in all three, all of the apostles are never told to preach that the kingdom of God is at hand? Why? Because it came. <laughs> because it came. The message of the kingdom of God is at hand is previous to Calvary. The message of the kingdom is now it's here. Right? Look at Luke 17. In, 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 in all the gospels, you're hearing about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, except for Luke. Luke is very interesting. Luke actually says kingdom of heaven. Why is it? Because the kingdom of God would have been an, an, let's say, an unfamiliar phrase to use in writing a book to non-Aramaic speaking people, right? The book of Luke was actually written predominantly for one rich millionaire for his own personal account of the gospels. And so when we see in Matthew, Mark, and John, which even some now are translating Matthew wrong, we oftentimes always see, or we always see in the other three gospels, the kingdom of God, which is the correct term. Because when we think kingdom of heaven, what do we think? Way up there, way far away. The kingdom of heaven is at hand when you don't sin enough and die. Praise the Lord, what a beautiful gospel. No wonder everyone's saved and doing so well. Um, but uh, I was being sarcastic. Uh, Luke 17, we start to see a transition of the gospel being at hand, or the kingdom being at hand, I mean. It says in verse 20 that Jesus was once asked by the Jewish religious leaders, when will God's kingdom come? Think about that phrase. He's been spending this whole time talking about what's coming, and they are asking, when will it come? I need to know right now when this is going to happen. Jesus' response is this. God's kingdom does not come simply by obeying principles or waiting for signs. The kingdom is not discovered in one place or another. For God's kingdom realm is already expanding within some of you right now. What a shocking, scandalous moment. You keep preaching this new kingdom. When's it gonna be here? Jesus goes, guess what? See these 12 guys behind me? It's here. It's here. It is, the, it is, it is Jesus basically giving the declaration that we are returning to the state of the garden as image bearers. What was our original design and intent as believers? It was to be image bearers. Right? It was to be representatives. It was to, that's what an apostle is. What does an apostle do? When Rome takes over a new city, an apostle's job is to go into that city and make it look, act, culturally feel like Rome. And eventually what happens? Every citizen in that city doesn't feel like they've been taken over by Rome. They actually feel like Romans. That's why we have the term do as the Romans do. Because what made Rome so profitable, what made Rome so powerful was not its ability to conquer people. It was the ability to make the people that they conquered actually think they were now Roman. This is the kingdom 
of God. This is the kingdom of the gospel. It is the idea that you are an image bearer, that everywhere you step, that everywhere you are is actually supposed to legally be the new Jerusalem. That everything you touch is actually made to be the new Jerusalem. How can Paul's sweat rag heal people two towns over? Because whatever Paul put on it was actually new Jerusalem. It was actually the kingdom of God. And this sounds incredible and it sounds amazing, but we can't actually get there. And why? It's because no matter what we do, we still, and I'm not saying just you, I'm not saying I've got this all figured out up here and I'm Jesus and you guys are not. I'm saying I, I'm discovering even in my own life, micro, micro expressions of religion, that if I miss this a day, if I don't do this right, if I don't do this a day, I find that he's either disappointed in me or I haven't done enough. I wake up and I decide to go get a coffee before I pay my tithe first and I go, oh God, I'm gonna be poor in the morning. It's gonna take away all my money because I didn't pay my tithes first. I wake up late. I remember the, when I first started doing Sabbath, it was such a dilemma because, you know, I like sleeping in. And if I get up too late in the day, like doing a bunch of devotional stuff, it's just kind of out the window. I'm either going to do it in the morning before everyone's up or it's most likely not getting done. And so I always lived in this dilemma of shame. Of do I get up early on Sabbath and do a bunch of Jesus stuff or do I actually relax and just sleep all morning? Talk about a terrible way to Sabbath is living in this massive freaking shame cycle back and forth of being good enough but it's what we're taught. And it's because our whole lives, we've been literally preached and preached and preached and preached that you better do enough and you better be enough. You better have enough in your bank account. You better have read enough books. You better have know enough Bible verses. And what's happened because of that is one generation got pretty smart, my generation, and they realized that that can't be the gospel. The only thing is that predominantly there's been no one around to preach the actual gospel. So now they're all deconstructionists because they don't know who they are, but all churches tell them is who they're not. Or churches tell them something even worse, that if they serve enough and if they tithe enough, that everything will be awesome and their wife will be hot and their lives will be fantastic. That's the American gospel, right? If you'll tithe and you'll serve long enough, I promise you will have everything you've ever dreamed of. Now let's take up an offering. And the problem is, is we can't reach any level of maturity because we refuse to kick self-effort out of the camp, right? But at some point, weaning day has to come. When Isaac was weaned, on weaning day for Isaac, what happens? Ishmael begins to mock who Isaac is about to become, which is what? The son a son, the real son, a true son, the true heir. What does self-effort do? It begins to mock any reality that Isaac could become the true heir and not Ishmael. But weaning day has to come. Weaning day is, is the true revelation that just maybe, just maybe Noah's not nuts and just maybe I am as righteous as God. Maybe just maybe the fix to all my problems, my lack of holiness is not looking at how awful I am. It's actually beholding him. Maybe shockingly, it's that. Let's look at Hebrews 5. 
Um, here it is. Uh, we, I don't know who, we don't really know who the writer of Hebrews was, but he's, the, the writer is trying to talk about Melchizedek um, from the book of Genesis. And as he's going through, or she, whoever it is that wrote it, goes on to this in Hebrews 5, verse 11. We have much to say about this topic, although it is difficult to explain. Because you have become too dull and sluggish to understand. For you should already be professors instructing others by now. But instead, you need to be taught from the beginning the basics of God's prophetic oracles. You're like children, ready, still needing milk and not yet ready to digest solid food. For every spiritual infant who lives on milk is not yet, get ready, pierced by the revelation of righteousness. Pierced by the revelation of righteousness. What is the sign of maturity in a believer? It is the actual truth of actually being pierced by the true revelation that I'm as righteous as God. Not because of me, because of him. But it is the actual gospel. It's two Corinthians. That he who knew no sin became sin so that I may become the righteousness of God. What happens though? We're infants. We've become sluggish and dull. It's not because we're not praying enough. There's great prayer movements everywhere. It's not because we don't have good services. We've got good worship, We've got awesome worship leaders. What happens is, is I have a great service. I have a great moment. I realize who I am. I go home and guess who knocks on the door? Ishmael. And he says, I don't know if that was really what you thought it was because I kind of know what you've been thinking about. I, I think you're a piece of crap. Right? It's the truth. We go home and, and, and we, we can't even live in, in, in any type of healthy season. How was how, how a, a perfect example, how is a young mom of a two-year-old and an infant supposed to spend three or four hours with the Lord? You want me to tell you how? In, in another reality, because it doesn't exist. They're just not. Because if they did, they'd probably be an alcoholic because it's the only way they could stay up that long. But that same person can't live in the season that they're supposed to live in because shame is telling them, hey, where's your checklist? And at some point, at some point, if, if, if awakening is really going to turn into revival and if revival is really going to turn into reformation and if everything that we're doing here isn't just cheap talk, but the reality of a kingdom family, we're going to have to come to the place where we are pierced with the revelation of righteousness, that we are as loved as the son and that all my efforts in the kingdom are not to prove how much I'm loved, it's actually to learn how much I'm loved. It's to learn who I've been designed to be the whole time. And the only way to do that is to change your mother. To get a new passport. To move into the new Jerusalem. To come out of this, this eschatological belief that you need some type of escape plan. Right? Because that's Christian eschatology now. Right? Is the rapture. Right, it's, it's the you, you, we've been spent our whole lives under under one concept. Oof, the world's gonna get bad, 
And even though the Lord said, make earth look like heaven, that was really just supposed to fail the whole time. And he sent you to do that just as a joke. It's gonna get so bad and, and everyone's gonna be so awful and every movie's gonna suck and every song's gonna be so satanic. The only option I have left is to come pick you up, is to come get you out of there so that you don't have to live in all that filth anymore. I'll, I'll come help you because you couldn't help yourself. Right? That's what we've been, that's what I was taught my whole life. Right? I remember when Obama was the Antichrist. I remember when Bill Clinton was the Antichrist. I remember when Saddam Hussein was the Antichrist. I remember when everyone and their mother was, was the Antichrist. Basically, any person that wasn't a conservative when I was a kid was the Antichrist. Especially if they were the president. That was my whole life. I remember someone goes, oh, they're erecting statues of Obama in India. He's the Antichrist. It's like, okay, calm down. Relax a bit. And, and for us, that actually excites us. Right? It's the same thing when we start to see big world wars. When, when the Ukraine and Russia war came out, we were all going, oh, I feel so sad for them, but maybe it's the rapture. Right? It was, it was oh, no, children are dying, but maybe I'll go to heaven. Maybe he'll come and save me. I won't have to pay my taxes this year. Right? That, that's, that's been our whole lives is, is just waiting and waiting. You, you actually begin to see, it's funny, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s is the first massive decline of biblical preachers actually not going to any biblical seminaries. It's the beginning of the end of preachers educating themselves. Why? Because it was the rise of all these wars and all this stuff and the preaching was Jesus is about to come, so don't go to school. Jesus is about to come. Don't get a degree. Get at the altar. For the love of God, Jesus is going to be here next month. Right? The atomic bomb's here. Jesus is going to be here. Don't go to college. And our whole lives have been built around this narrative when actually everything I read in the Bible actually tells me I'm actually supposed to make this place look just like heaven. My Bible actually teaches me something just a, a little bit different that actually I've been called to bring heaven to earth. And that, and that heaven on earth or heaven in Chattanooga isn't some beautiful marketing strategy. It's actually a mandate. And it actually isn't a plan that I'm supposed to have to make fail, but it's actually what I've been called to do the whole time is bring people into the new Jerusalem. This is why when it says in Romans that the earth is on tiptoe in anticipation of waiting, it's not for the return of Christ. It's not for the rapture. It's actually for the unveiling of the sons and daughters of Yahweh is what it says. Because guess how the planet gets freed from its curse? Is you realizing who you are? Is Jesus coming back? Sure, guaranteed. I'll put $1,000 on it right now. Is our concept maybe a little bit off that maybe Jesus comes when this place looks exactly like the place he's coming from rather than when it looks like it's worse? Maybe the declaration of, oh my gosh, in revelations of, oh my gosh, the kingdoms of this world are beginning to look like the kingdoms of our Lord is actually the sign that Jesus is coming because we've already done that. Maybe entire nations are actually called to look just like the kingdom of our Lord. And maybe the beginning place of that is not the end. The beginning place of that is the true formation of our own personal identity. 
This is what, I, in my opinion, real re reformation looks like. It's us being who we're called to be. I'm trying to check the time. I know everyone wants a donut, so I'm trying to do my best here. 20 more, 40 more minutes, 50 more minutes. We'll... <laughs> um, I'll share one more thing and then another story, and then we'll, we'll go get all the free stuff. Um, I'm going to go back to Galatians free because Galatians 3, not free. Galatians could be free depending on translation you're reading. But Galatians 3, because I, I want you to have a true understanding of, of how valuable and important you are. Of, of who you've actually been designed to be. And I shared this at the men's retreat. But Galatians 3, beginning at verse 15, talks about the law versus God's promise. It says, beloved friends, let me use an illustration that we can all understand. Technically, when a contract is signed, it can't be changed after it has been put into effect. It's too late to alter the agreement. Remember the royal proclamation God spoke over Abraham and to Abraham's child? God said that his promises were made to pass on to Abraham's child, not children. And who is Abraham's child? It's the son of the promise, Christ himself. Who's the son given to Abraham? Christ, not Isaac. This means that the covenant between God and Abraham was fulfilled in Messiah and cannot be altered. Yet the written law was not even given to Moses until 430 years after God had signed his contract with Abraham. The law then doesn't supersede the promise since the royal proclamation was given before the law. If that were the case, it would have nullified what God said to Abraham. We receive all the promises because of the promised one, not because we keep the law. Why do we receive the inheritance and promises of God through our faith? It's because that's the way it was promised to Abraham. and Abraham's child. Who is Abraham's child? It's way less Isaac and way more the Messiah. If you look at Genesis chapter 21, it talks about the story of, of Abraham being tested and basically God telling him like, hey, go up on the mountain and stab your son. Totally normal thing to do. Totally normal. It opens up in chapter 21. It says that God woke Abraham up early in the morning and, and when he woke, he woke him up to test him, or he woke up to test Abraham is how it says. When we look at the word test there, um, the word is uh, nasa, or, or nase, however you want to say it. But it actually means to prove. So if we look at Genesis chapter 1 correctly, it's that it is that Yahweh woke up Abraham to prove his faith to prove to Abraham how strong his faith was and what the actual promise was. If you look at the word, um, the Midrash, which is uh, like a Messianic uh, Jewish group of scribes and rabbis and theologians, uh, they actually show that the word Nassau, translated to prove, um, which is the word tested, is actually derived 
etymologically from the word elevated. To elevate a banner. And so our whole lives, I believe we've lived under this reality of a false good father. And we think that God looks over at the angels and goes, watch this, I'm going to get Abraham to kill his kid because I know he won't tell me no. I'll save him at the end, but watch how much he freaks out until that moment comes. Right? Because we see God as kind of this, this New Testament loving father and this Old Testament weird guy. But what's he actually doing in the moment? Yahweh is actually going to prove Abraham's faith by taking him up on a mountain and actually elevate his faith to the truth of what his prophetic word given to Abraham was, which that I promised you a son, and I know that you think it's Isaac, and yes, it is Isaac, but it's not. Your son is coming. Your, your, your true heir is coming. If you read on into Galatians, the last verse before it moves into Galatians 4 reads like this. And if you belong to Christ, talking about us, then you are now Abraham's child and a true heir of all his blessings because of the promise that God made to Abraham. Why don't you guys stand up? Paul is giving all these analogies in Galatians. Galatians is a, is a very early book for Paul. Um, Galatians is the, the, the prototype Romans. It's kind of the early, more angry Paul, um, kind of writing out his, his pre-version of what Romans will become, the great, the great book, Romans. Um, Paul is giving all these analogies to consistently show us one thing that you're the spoken of child. You're the prophesied one. Not because of something you did, not because of something you can earn and not without Jesus either, but because of Jesus. That because of your faith in Jesus, the promises given to Abraham were actually given to you. The prophecy given to Abraham that his children would outnumber the stars in the sky is actually you. And oftentimes our concept is, okay, that all sounds great. And you know, you did a good job of backing it up theologically. But here's the problem, I'm still sinning. I'm still doing stuff. So what's going on? Well, could it possibly be that you share and carry the belief that you have to continue to do that? Could it be that maybe you focusing on the thing that you're doing wrong every day and focusing on how bad it is maybe actually isn't helping you because you're still doing it? Have you ever thought that maybe taking your focus off fixing the problem and putting your focus on Jesus and how much you're loved by him may actually be the solution you're looking for? Have you ever thought that waking up every morning and shaming yourself and condemning yourself and, 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 and talking yourself off of a cliff of how awful you are isn't the best way to spiritual growth? I love the analogy of... of, uh, of of roses. If I were to go to the store today and buy 12, a dozen roses, and I gave them to Larry, because he's such a good husband. That's Deb. 
He's great. If I gave him 12 roses, beautiful, fully in bloom, smelling incredible, are those roses alive or are they dead? They're dead. They're actually dead. They've been cut from their stems. Those roses have no chance of making it very long. You can put the little goo thing they give you in there and the water for about three or four days, but them, them puppies are gonna die. And what's happening oftentimes with us is we're walking around with a dead nature, but we keep changing out the water and keep reviving something that's actually supposed to be dead in us. How? Because I keep focusing on it. I keep focusing on the roses. Yeah, the roses are dead, but if I change out the water, maybe if I put some plant food in there, maybe they'll live another day. Maybe I'll get one more good day out of them. Let them die. Quit looking at them. Quit smelling them. You know what the hardest thing was for Abraham to do probably in his entire life? Was to watch his first son, after having no kids for 80 years, watch his first son Ishmael, go off into the desert to never be seen from by him again. Could you imagine? Could you imagine going up to him and, and Hagar being like, hey, remember how I married Sarah first? Yeah, you gotta go. It says Abraham mourned for Ishmael. It wasn't easy. And there are a lot of things I think that we're all deeply in love with that we've built through our own self-effort that we think, I don't wanna let that go because it works somewhat. Like Ishmael did work. Abraham would have had an heir. Abraham would have had a son to give everything to. It wouldn't have gone to a servant. What, what, what self-effort came up with actually was a good solution at the time. It just wasn't the promise. And we're, we're, we're seeing that in church. We're seeing that in our own Christian walks is, well, it's, it's kind of working. I don't always feel like a piece of crap. I don't always sin. I'm not always bad. I'm not living in freedom, but I'm not always not not living in freedom. And so our, 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 our mindset is, well, self-effort must be a little good. You know? Oh man, we put out a new poster for Be Love and 20 people came. Maybe I should do more advertising. It worked. Did it? Did it actually work? Is, is, is your actual checklist that you've built for yourself of all the things you have to be, all the things you have to do, is it actually working? Or is it getting you by? Or are you waiting to die? What if you killed the roses? What if you quit looking at them? What if you actually wake up every day and behold the Father? What if you focus on how much He loves you and how much you love Him? What if you tried that for six months? What if you tried that for a year? What if a group of people outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee tried that and every person that walked in here experienced such a purity of the new Jerusalem that everything that was wrong with them left? What if you became so convinced that you were a son or daughter, you walked into T.C. Thompson and every kid walked out with you? What if you were so convinced 
that you were loved, that you didn't have to give your tithe, that you could give anything you wanted to because it didn't matter. Maybe you were called to give 40%. Maybe your blessing isn't, isn't tie, tied to a law. Maybe it's tied to your intimacy with the one whom you're giving to. Maybe all your hoops need to be burned. Maybe all your focus, all your eye gaze needs to be on the sun. Because we're supposed to be co-heirs. The Bible says, I'll judge angels. That feels like a pretty big responsibility. And I, I, I just wanna tell you that doesn't have to wait until you're dead. So by your head, I'm just gonna pray. And then we can go out and hang out together and be together as a family. But Father, I just, my hope is that we become so entrenched by the reality of the real gospel that we can't look back. Father, let us become Elishas, that when we see the truth of the gospel, we burn our plow and we leave. Let us be stripped of our legalism and our religion. Let us burn our list of have-tos and let us move into the reality of get-tos. Let us move away from the circle dance of shame, forgiveness, shame, forgiveness, sin, shame, forgiveness. Father, let us move into the reality that we have been declared as righteous as God. Let us walk into all that that freedom brings in, brings to us. Let us join in what you're doing in the earth, not because of our effort in a service, but because who you called us to be before the foundations of the world. I bless our people. I bless our kingdom family. Be with us today. Be with us tonight. Be in our unity. Knit us together. In Jesus' name we pray.